is everybody today? Everybody's good. I am trying to finagle this cute little stand. Well, we're starting a new series. Um, it's actually called A Healthy Heart. I think it's going to be about four weeks that we're going to land on it. So we're going to start this week. Um, and has anybody ever read the book by um, Andy Stanley? He actually talks about the four enemies of the heart. It's actually a very good book. I highly recommend um, anyone and everyone to read it. But some of the things and some of the points that I'll be sharing today are things that I had learned initially from that book. And then we actually have a testimony from someone um, within our congregation that's going to share today about a real breakthrough on, a, on the heart level. And it actually has to do with um, just even this one thing that we're going to discuss today is in a correspondence between us. There was dialogue, and I pretty much had just said to them, how's your heart? <laughs> and it really just kind of led them on a journey where the Lord really orchestrated and revealed some things. So we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to look at scripture, and then we're going to hear a powerful testimony today. Um, but just kind of as a disclaimer before we even look at this, you know, first and foremost, one of the beautiful things about salvation and who Jesus Christ is, is that he does care for us on a heart level, is that we have not signed up for a religion that he is looking for us to conform our behavior and to align our life to be something and do something and follow a ritual or guidelines while inside our heart is perishing and devoid of life. The amazing thing is you can get it all right on the outside. And he cares desperately about your inward man. I mean, if you actually look at um, just even the Gospels, if you just take some time to look in the Gospels, that's primarily even what we see in the life of the Pharisees, is we actually see that they were getting it all right outwardly, and he, Jesus came along and was, it was addressing their inward man. And the issue of the heart is something that's largely neglected, if you think about it. There's a passage in Proverbs that says, guard your heart with all diligence, Say, the word, say this with me, with all diligence. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. That, that is a warning, and that is something for us to heed, rather than for it to be something that we casually approach the issues of our heart. But let's just think about it. As children, they just, just go there with me, how you were raised in your childhood and your upbringing. Most of us as children... Our, our parents, it's the questions of, did you brush your teeth? Did you do your homework? It's the questions of, did you pass your tests? Did you listen in school? Did you, I mean, we're asking, did you score a goal? Did you, all of those things. But how many of us did our parents consistently and steadfastly ask us at the end of the day, how was your heart? Did you get hurt today? Were you disappointed today? I mean, the assessment of our heart, of if the word of God places such a preeminence on the importance of heart issues, if Jesus even places such an emphasis upon heart issues, how much more should we pay attention to the issues of the heart? So what we actually do is we grow up as children focused upon the outward. I got an A on my test. I did it. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is my favorite color. This is the sport that I play. This is the, we can identify who we are on an outward level and what we associate with. And then on a heart level, we largely are completely out of touch with the woundings, the disappointments, the things that occurred to us or happened to us throughout the day. And you know, it's funny because, um, I definitely, the question that I asked this friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, how's your heart? I, I do ask my son, but I ask him on uh, very different levels. Because I think if I said, how's your heart? He'd be like, it's beating, you know. <laughs> um, I ask him, I, but I will say to him at the end of the day, did anything hurt your feelings today? And, you know, when we're praying together, but the funniest thing is, is that he's so learned to articulate himself and express his emotion and let me know exactly how it is that if I even set a boundary of like, you aren't, you can't throw the ball in the house. Like I already told you, if you throw the ball again, this is when I do that, he will look at me and just go, that hurt my feelings. And I'm like, no, you're hurt because you're not getting your way. That's that's a little different. Like, I'm sorry, that doesn't bother me. <laughs> um, but it's very interesting. Actually, yesterday, we, we pretty much, it's take it or leave it. I'm not saying every house has to do it. We, we have a pretty strict policy in our house of raising your voice. I'm a firm believer that 
if I'm going to get my child to listen, it's not going to work by me screaming at him. It's going to work best if I draw him close and I speak to him, you know, in an articulate way. Because then if he starts screaming at me, what am I supposed to do? Don't scream at me! You know, even though that's what you've seen. So I don't raise my voice in general. And um, my, my, if my husband were in the room, he would tell you he's a little bit more prone to the volume side of discipline. And I very quickly, you know, you know like we'll give him, a, and he'll, you know, he'll bring it down. Okay, Abram, you know. So yesterday, he spilt his kefir. You know, we, we had a big episode all over our kitchen. And it was all because he wasn't listening. And I definitely did not yell. I probably more spoke to him the way that I talk to you when I preach. A little bit escalated, you know. So I was, you know, I was like, sit down. Don't get up from the table. You know, I'm doing the like, and because I was frustrated, I had a lot to do. I, and he just simply looked at me. He didn't seem at all moved or hurt or anything. He just turned his head and looked at me. And he goes, why are you talking so loudly right now? That's what he <laughs> And I just looked at him and I said, because I'm frustrated but I'm going to stop talking loudly. <laughs> but it was just kind of like, what is wrong with you? I can hear you. Like, you're close to me. <laughs> but just the emphasis, as many of you probably can identify, that on a heart level as a child, you didn't have somebody weeding through the junk of your day of who hurt you on the playground. Did you feel rejected? Do you feel as though your teacher misunderstood you and falsely you know, accused you? You know, things like that where on... Day in and day out, you get hurt. Day in and day out, you feel misunderstood. Day in and day out, you have needs that are unmet. So basically what ends up happening when we're kids is we just kind of walk through life kind of like dealing with it. Just kind of like, okay, all right. Um, and, you know, the way I like to think about it with the issue of like prayer, you know, because people can get into like, oh, don't be legalistic. It's not like you have to pray every day. You commune with the Father. My theory is prayer is more like a maintenance issue. Like my heart... I don't know about all you folk, but my heart just has to be maintained. Like with the fact that I got offended that this didn't go my way, the fact that this person overlooked me, I just have to maintain. And in order to keep a clean slate before the Lord, you know, I basically have to get up in the morning and say, Jesus, it's all about you. I want my heart to be awakened to your voice. I want my gaze to be directed on you. But then at the end of the day, I kind of have to decompress. I kind of have to go through the, wow, I got really dirty in that conversation. Wow, that person's attitude, whew, wow, that pierced me, that hurt me, that bothered me. You almost have to go through the course of the day of the things that didn't go your way, that you wish went another way, the, the name you got called, the, you know, those kind of things. But largely what we do as believers is we just live with it. And what happens is, is over a course of time, we don't understand why our heart is numb, desensitized, can't find passion, can't hear God's voice. You know, we kind of, oh, how many of you, we're all adults in this room. How many of us sit there and kind of go, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know, I can't, I don't have passion, I'm confused, I'm not living in peace. You know, relationships are broken. I mean, any person you talk to, on any level, if you, in this room, there, it could be a family member, it could be a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be someone in your work environment that rubs you the wrong way, someone in your school environment, a professor. There is some relational dynamic that it's the rub in your life that, and on some varying degree, based upon our woundedness, we either deal with it in a healthy manner or it blows up, sabotages. We sever relationship. We move to another state. All of those things. But saying all of that to say Jesus cares about your heart. He's not looking for you just to get the Ten Commandments down pat, try to work it out, try to get it together and put on your Christian persona. He's desperately looking and jealous after your heart. He wants your heart to be alive. And so if I could say one thing to you is forget all the outward conformity. I don't care if you look successful. I don't care if you got it all together. But on the inside, if you have a storm raging, you're not successful because Jesus wants peace in the inward man. He wants you to live that place of prosperity, not how America defines prosperity, that you have it all, you have all the degrees, you got it all together, but inside your life is a storm. He's saying, I don't care what it looks like outwardly. If you have life and peace inwardly, the rest of it just kind of all comes, it's, it's icing on the cake. It's icing on the cake. His concern is about the inward man. And we actually find this in Matthew chapter 18, if you want to turn there with me. 
Jesus is so kind. He cares so deeply for us. So compassionate. Actually, I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 15. Sorry. This is where basically um, Jesus is giving the commandments first, man's traditions. And as you guys know, this is actually where the Pharisees were accusing uh, Jesus' disciples of not washing their hands before they ate meat. I mean, they're, they got their panties in a knot over the fact, sorry, is that, <laughs> I don't know if that's a term, <laughs> sorry. That just means, you know, they were disgruntled. <laughs> So chapter 15, then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Mark you, the tradition of the elders. This was not the law of Moses. This was not anything that God had put in place. This is what man had put in place. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? Verse 4. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, however, say to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to to God. Verse 6, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your traditions. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you. And now he quotes this passage in Isaiah. These people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Meaning they teach it as a doctrine, but it's the commands of man that they have created. And so this is where we find, I mean, all throughout passages of scripture, we find Jesus. But this is, I want the emphasis for you to understand, but he's saying, but their hearts are far, far from me. He's looking for the heart. And that when we bring our heart before him, then everything else, all of the other sin issues, they eventually actually fall away. Because when he has our heart, he begins to take over every dimension of our life. And it's the work of his spirit that does that. So we find Jesus's emphasis. And what we're going to look at today is four main points. As I'm going through these four main points, there's going to be many of the room kind of going, oh, I have this other category in my life that this is what I struggle with or this is my reality. I can guarantee you probably anything that we're struggling with in our humanity, come back to these four main points, um, which if you're taking notes, you can write them down. Number one is guilt. Number two is anger. Number three is greed. And number four is jealousy. And so you could, even hearing those, you're you're probably like, I don't struggle with greed, don't struggle with jealousy, doing okay there, pretty confident. You know, all, you might go down your checklist, but I guarantee that whatever issue relationally or even emotionally is probably rooted in one of these four basic uh, things that war against our heart. So our, our goal today, yes, to identify what these four things are, but to give us solutions, on how do we as people combat these things. If we've been instructed, guard our heart with all diligence, how exactly do we do that? And when these things are warring against our hearts, how, how do we become successful so that we don't succumb to them? Number one is guilt. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But the issue of guilt in our lives. Basically, if you're kind of like, what classifies as guilt? Okay, yes, Jesus Christ forgives us of our sins. So each and every single one of us in this place, we may have asked for forgiveness for something. But there's some of us that have particular things that come back and nag us. They nag us. And you actually sit there kind of going, I've asked for forgiveness. I've pleaded the blood of Jesus. You know, I've done all my, but yet I don't seem to be set free from this. This issue of guilt is something where we carry shame. If there's something in our life that we, and, and this is a good way, if you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I have guilt or if it's just one of those things that I'm trying to work out my salvation. And a good way to identify if you have guilt is if there's something that you keep in secret that you have fear attached to people finding out. Or even in the sense that if it's associated to maybe even some way that you sinned against another person, and the thought of seeing that person or having to encounter that person brings guilt upon you. The extraordinary thing about Jesus is, yes, he forgave us. It's forgiven. But there's another level of forgiveness that he actually wants your heart set free. And so, yes, we ask for forgiveness, and according to him, the slate is clear. 
But there's a whole other level of freedom that he has made a way for us in humanity. And it's actually something called confession. Confession. Like the room goes silent because everybody's like, wait one second. What do you mean confession? We're going to look at three passages of scripture. But in essence, what it is is sometimes we actually, let me say it this way. We confess to Jesus. And once we confess to Jesus, some of us in our theology... It actually validates for us to continue in that behavior. Think of it this way. How many of you in your teenage years, somehow you got an interpretation of the gospel that if you sin, you ask for forgiveness, Jesus will forgive you, and then the slate's wiped clean. And somewhere that was justified as, so when you were about to make a decision for right or wrong, when you were tempted in an area of your life, and instead of feeling as though you had the power to resist and the strength to resist, it was more justified as, I'll just ask for forgiveness after. And Jesus is, a, Jesus is a loving Savior. He'll forgive me. And then a week later, you find yourself doing the same thing. See, repentance is not so that it covers us to continue. Repentance is so that we are changed and transformed not to continue in that pattern of sin. And so we, we actually find in Scripture is we find repentance and confession are two different things. We repent before the Lord, but he's actually instructed us to confess before man, before people. Obviously, number one, let me just say there's a place where we confess with those that we have trust and we have confidence that they would not be harmful or um, incriminating in the information. But then there's also a place that sometimes if we have sinned against another person, that we, we need to confess to them. As much as that might feel, if you've gossiped against somebody, and every time you see that person, you're kind of like, oh, I just feel so uncomfortable. I just feel uncomfortable, and I don't want to make eye contact with them. And that Maybe you should just go right up to them and just say, I've sinned against you, because they might already know it. <laughs> but there could be a place where your heart just needs to be set free. And you know the power of confession? This is extraordinary. Because some of you are sitting here going, nope, that's not the God I serve. Just before him, if I just confess that it, it's gone. Well, let me just say to you, if you have done all your theological gymnastics and appropriated every passage of Scripture that you know, but yet you're not free from guilt, it might simply be that there's another tool in the toolkit that he's given to you that you're just not using. It's a tool. It's nothing to bring shame or condemnation upon you. It's to bring freedom and liberty. So many times I have met with people and counseled people, and once they have taken that step of confessing, because you know what it is? I'm I'm just going to say this. If you start to use the discipline of confession in your life, I guarantee you certain sins will minimize greatly. And I'm going to use this as an example. I was, so for those of you that don't know, I was a freshman in high school when I gave my life to Jesus and, like, followed him. Like, I wasn't, like, looking to play, like, a religious game. I was like, my life is yours. I left public high school, went to a Christian high school, and started praying and fasting my brains out. So it was during that time I became sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So I'm talking to the pastor's wife one day. I used to nanny for them and live with them. And I'm talking to her, and, like, while I'm talking to her, all of a sudden, I started getting really convicted. Like, the Holy Spirit's like, you just totally exaggerated. That's a lie. And I was like, and you know, we all know these. We all know when we give an element of the truth and we leave the person's mind to presume the rest. And it gets presumed. And you know it's painted in a different light than actually how. But, you know, you didn't say it. You just left it open for interpretation. You know, one of those things. So anyway, I, I go about, and I feel so convicted. Like, I'm aware of it. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I just, I, I lied. I lied. And I realized, I was like, that is not a behavior that I would actually like to harbor and protect and groom and grow in my life. Thank you very much, lying. So that occurred, and I realized I felt really uncomfortable. And then I was, like, in another conversation with somebody else. And, again, I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, you just exaggerated. You lied. And I started realizing, I was like, oh, dang, I got a problem. (laughs) Like, what what am I going to? And I started realizing, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. If I find myself doing that right there in front of the person, I'm going to look at them and say, I'm really sorry. I need to retract that statement that wasn't accurate. So I'm in a conversation once again because I lived with them. So I talked to them a lot with my pastor's wife. And so I say something, and I I say to her, I said, I just need to clarify something. This isn't actually what happened. This is what happened. I lay it, I humble myself, basically. You know, I'm like, I just want to, you know, tell you the truth, that this isn't what, and she kind of was like, 
Bethany, that was a really minor detail. Like, and let's just be honest. To the other person, it's probably like no big deal. Because they probably weren't listening to you anyway. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But you know, for us, everything's big and ginormous in every detail. And I'm sure they're like now going home and thinking about my life. No, they, they didn't even hear a word you said. <laughs> so she was kind of like, you know, Bethany, get over it. Like, you're all right. And I went, no, it's not all right. And I said, and I don't want to continue to do that. So I've made a commitment when I do this in conversation, I'm going to confront it and expose it. And you should have seen her. She was kind of like, ooh, you're freaky. You know, <laughs> like scary. But I can tell you, it stopped. Like it just stopped because the uncomfortableness of being like, oh, hold up. You know, just hold up one second. I need to clarify something. I lied. I just lied. It's not awesome. <laughs> There's healing in that. I mean, it went to the very root of that thing. But if I had continued to conceal it and hide it and cover it and protect it, I guarantee you, I would have continued to feel the Holy Spirit prompt me and been like, oh, oh, next time I just won't do that. But there it comes flying out of your mouth again. But there's something that happens in breaking that cycle. So I can guarantee if there is something in your life, a perpetual sin, if there is someone that you are accountable to that you can begin to bear your heart to, And I know it's crazy to think, like, every time I do that, what do you mean, pick up the phone and say? But the incredible thing is when you begin exposing that to the light rather than keeping it hidden, something powerful happens. How many of you guys are familiar with the passage in James? Are you guys uh, familiar with the instruction that he has given us that if we confess our faults one to another, that he is faithful and just? He is faithful and just. Why does he and James instruct us to confess our faults one to another? I mean, isn't it easier just to keep it between me and God? Because it's our pride. And you know what that is? When we are unwilling to confess, we actually haven't come to a place where we care more about our freedom, our liberty, where we care more about walking before the Lord in holiness than we care about our image. Than we care about what people think about us. Than we care about the persona that we're going to portray. So James, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. How many of you guys are familiar with um, Zacchaeus? We actually find the story of Zacchaeus. How many of you know? You guys all know the story. He's the tax collector. He stole from people. Zacchaeus stole from people. So Jesus says, come down the tree. I'm coming to your house today. Jesus goes to his house. Basically, Zacchaeus repents, but that could have been enough, right? He repented to Jesus. He, he was made new. But what did Zacchaeus say? He said, I'm going to go to every person I stole from, and I'm going to restore fourfold. Hold up. I'm not sure if everybody knew that he was stealing or how exposed it was, but now he's actually taking the posture of confessing. He's taking the posture of going back and being like, I owe this to you. It's fourfold what I stole from you. It's the power of confession. It's desiring to walk free from sin Desiring to walk free from anything that would hinder our relationship more, hinder our relationship and desiring that more than we desire our own reputation. And it's it's cleansing, it's freeing, it's liberating. (laughs) How about Mark 1, 4 through 5? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then all of the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins, confessing it, declaring it. So our solution, that if there's areas of guilt in our life, those nagging things that actually come to kind of haunt us and like, oh, I stole an eraser when I was in the third grade. I mean, seriously, if that just won't go away, (laughs) just go ahead and go get your accountability partner or someone and just say, hey, just going to put this out there. I was like a klepto in the third grade. Like, I I just want to put it out there, just get rid of it, confess it, pray for me, because it's been tormenting me since the third grade. (laughs) I did. I stole a nurse in the third grade. (laughs) And I did. I had to confess it to someone and to be free. Uh, (laughs) You laugh. So the solution is confession. And it actually does bring relief from our guilt, not because it's something that we're doing before man, not because it's part of our religion, because it's just one of the tools that Jesus has given us to be set free, and he desires us to be set free. So if you are finding that there's an area in your heart that you are struggling, start to ask the question, God, is there any place I struggle with guilt? 
Is there a place where I feel guilty? Really, basically what guilt comes down to is you owe. You owe someone, either another person or you feel like you owe God, but you feel indebted. You feel, you're on that side of things of feeling like I owe something because I've taken something, meaning that you've sinned in an area. Uh, number two is anger. So number one was, um, yeah, it was guilt. I was just trying to see if I want to cover anger for our, we're limited on time. I just, yeah, let's, let's move to anger. Number two is anger. Basically, what is anger? I mean, some of us in this room, we may boil and blow outwardly, and some of us boil and fume inwardly. But nonetheless, you know it when you're around an angry person. No matter how it manifests, you feel it. It, it ebbs from their pores, doesn't it? You just kind of, and really, depending on the root of anger in our life, it to varying degrees, there's some people that no matter what you do, they're going to be angry. I mean, it's just no matter how you slice it, how you dice it, how you perform it, if you just don't do it just right, they're going to be angry. And if you're one of those people, no condemnation, we all to varying degrees struggle with anger. But if you're one of those people that deal with a root of anger, in essence, what anger is in all of our lives, I don't care if it's towards your kid, towards your spouse, towards your professor, your employer, your employee. Number one, you're hurt over something. But it's some way you're not getting your own way. I mean, just boil it all right down to that. And it may be completely justified, meaning your anger might be justified. If you're angry over an abuse that took place, rightfully so, you should be angry. There is anger that is invoked from that. But harboring and not releasing that anger now becomes toxic and poisonous. So there's very real things to be frustrated over, to be um, agitated over, because basically what anger is, is that somebody has taken something from you. Somebody has in some way, someone, uh, if they, let's just say a promotion that was promised to you and it wasn't given to you. You're angry. Am I saying that it's wrong to feel that emotion? I am not saying the emotion itself is wrong. What I'm saying, if you don't, in a healthy fashion, identify that was owed to me. They told me that they were going to give me that promotion. And then if you don't, and here's the solution, walk through the process of forgiveness, you will remain in anger. So every single one of us, I could get angry at my husband because he leaves his shoes on when he comes in the house. I don't like shoes on in my house. Clean to the floors. I got a small kid. Come on, take off your shoes. But on some level, for me to get frustrated, angry, then fume, cause a fight, that night realize I resent you, you know, you wore shoes in my house, you know, whether I'm right, he's right, Forget who's right. On some level, if you are angry, you are the responsible party with how you process and deal and then eliminate that from your life. My dad was an emotionally abusive person. Just put it right out there. Was I angry about that as a child? Was there ways that I was deeply hurt by him? And that, yes, my anger is justified? Absolutely. But continuing in my behavior and continuing in anger is never justified. Because what it is, is it's keeping you in a prison and it's actually causing your life to become toxic and poisoned. So the issue of anger, it's one of those things, just to begin to question, is there anybody that I, that I feel like has taken from me? That could be any. I mean, some of you could be angry at your employer because you think they're incompetent. Some of you could be angry at your employees because you think they're incompetent. <laughs> And nobody's saying that those facts aren't true. You know, nobody's saying that those are not real situations. But unless you begin to then, like I said, begin to process and say, okay, I am angry with this person because they owe me. They're, they're taking away from efficiency. They're taking whatever it may be, whatever those issues may be, be them real or imagined. <laughs> But unless we're identifying it and then processing it so we're not acting out in anger, the Word of God warns very clearly and very, very seriously on the issue of anger. How many of you guys are familiar with, with Ephesians 4, 31? Get rid of all anger. Wow, we're losing lights. Get rid of all anger. It doesn't say get rid of any unjustified anger. Get rid of any anger that was caused because of a petty issue. <laughs> because obviously there are both. There are those that are petty and there are those that are justified because of legitimate abuse, neglect, mistreatment, 
that you're not getting, some of you, you do not get the proper recognition at your job. Should you be praised because you're an amazing employee? Yes, you should. But if you don't move on from that place of feeling like something is owed to you, it is going to become toxic and it will affect your job, your job situation. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all anger. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Matthew 18.21, let's turn there. This is a great, wow. Are we like overusing electricity or something? Is the hotel telling us we capped it with our volume? So we have to, okay, we're going to do this in the dark. Uh, Matthew 18, 21. Uh, Let's see, actually. Okay, so this is actually where Peter came to Jesus. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? I think Peter thought he was being generous. He was like, seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, and here it is right here for us in plain print, folks. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So you have a king, and someone is brought to him that owes him 10,000 talents. But he was not able to pay his master, his master demanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and, the, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hand on him and told him, oh, and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So this gentleman that was just showed mercy, that was just released of his debt, he now goes out and finds a debtor and he demands payment. Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison So he was just actually shown compassion and not thrown into prison. But now he throws this other gentleman into prison. Uh, So when the fellow servant saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the, the tor- torturer until he should pay all that was due him. Now, verse 35 is a heavy one. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his, bro- his brother his trespasses. So basically what this is saying is Jesus is the first one that forgives the debt. He's forgiven all of us a debt. But then we as individuals walk around demanding that others pay back what they owe. We live in that place of you owe me. You should have never, you should have. And let me just say, rightfully so. There was money that was owed. I mean, he wasn't fabricating it. But the understanding is if we begin to look at our life as you are the debtor and you owe something to me. But when we begin to weigh our life under the shadow of the cross, We are all debtors that have been showed mercy. And the only right response is then to show mercy to others. It's the understanding that we have been extended mercy and grace. And the the appropriate response to that is then to extend mercy and grace. Clearly, Peter actually hadn't at that point in time understood forgiveness. Because he was even looking to, what is the limit to this? Like, how many times do I forgive? Is it seven times? And then Jesus goes on to instruct that it's 70 times seven. So basically, we probably have three groups of people in this room. When we talk about the issue of forgiveness, if you just begin to weigh, who is it that I'm angry with? Who is it do I feel that has sinned against me? 
Who is it that I feel like um, has wronged me or taken from me? I mean, in, in gossip, they're taking from your reputation. They're, they're soiling your reputation. Even in promotions, in job, in school environments, all of those things that if it's someone that you feel as though has harmed you, when you begin to think about that, the proper response is forgiveness. So we probably have three groups of people because you generally do one of these three responses. One is, I won't forgive. Meaning, I, because people almost view it as, if, it, if they owe me, why would I extend mercy to them? That's an injustice to release mercy. Because number, number one, forget the other individual for the sake of your own heart and your life before the Lord and to remain in a place of peace, you owe it to yourself. Number two, there's another group of people that would, would even want to say, I've tried that and it didn't work. People that have genuinely set, walked through the process of, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to release, I'm going to forgive, but they actually don't feel free in their heart. This is what I want to say to you with all of these points, with everything that we discussed today, whether it be guilt, whether it be anger, or the other two that we'll move into, they're not a one-time shot. We don't deal with forgiveness once and then the rest of our life walk free and clear of it. That is why the charge is given to us. Guard your heart with all diligence. It's daily. You don't shower once and then you're good for five years. I mean, come on. You don't brush your teeth once. I mean, there's the place where we maintain health. And we understand it in the terms of maintaining our physical body, but our spiritual man and our emotional heart requires that much more attention for the maintaining of our health and our livelihood as the word of God declares that out of your life, out of your heart flows the issues of your life. The rest of your life will either experience prosperity and blessing or it will experience bitter waters, trouble and hardship and difficulty. You can have it all stacked up just right. And if the issues of the heart are not dealt with and if we don't steward them right, rightly, we will find we are surrounded by devastation. And the greatest devastation is a lack of peace. That is the greatest devastation to the soul. And the last group is I simply can't. Like, almost like, I, I can't. Like, I wish that I was willing to. I wish that I, and I, I would just encourage anybody that almost feels, because obviously in some situations when people have harmed us, robbed from us, I mean, I've walked people through, I mean, lots and lots of money. Like, meaning lent it to people, promised that it would be paid back, businesses went under, you know, families that suffer in that. Because, you know, it's money that should have gone to children and all of that. That's painful, that's real. And oftentimes in those situations, there almost has to be that, yes, if you feel like you can't, ask the Lord to give you the grace. Just begin to say, I am willing. I, I, I will not be resistant. I make a choice. I make a choice and I choose to forgive and trusting. All of these principles, I'm just going to say to you, if you wait until your emotions are there, like if you wait until you feel a certain way to... Um, like with guilt, if you're like, when I feel it, when I feel good about confessing, I'll do that. I will do that. When I have the confidence, when I have the peace, or even with anger, when I feel like I can forgive, then I'm, all of these things are actually habits and things that we need to exercise before the feelings or even before the breakthrough is ever there. And it brings the breakthrough. It brings the place of release. Um, yeah, so basically you find this parable that Jesus gives. I mean, forgiveness does not make any sense in the Old Testament. It really does not make any sense. But under the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have no other option and no other response but to forgive. Uh, moving on, the, the fourth, uh, I'm sorry, the third is greed. Most of us in this room probably be like, I am not greedy. That is just not. Here's a good indication, especially in our American society, of the issue of greed. I don't care whether you are bottom of the total pole in the room and whether you, you, you know, if you are using food stamps and you feel as though you can't get enough to get by. And I don't care if you own a yacht. Whoever we are, greed is not an economic issue. It's a heart issue. You may sit there and think, I have nothing. I am not greedy. People should be giving me more. <laughs> you know, I'm not hoarding. I'm not. Or you might be thinking, I give extravagantly. But really a good indication of greed is this right here. When money is given to us, whether that be a bonus at work, whether it be Christmas, whether it's an unexpected raise, you know, all of those different things. Let me just ask this question. 
How many of us have the first response of, Lord, who would you have me bless with this? Most of us, you know, we own homes, we have cars, we have children. Some of us have crazy school debts and loans that we have out. There's very real need. I get that. Like, I get, I get that. But because of our consumer society, it's always going to be bigger, better, more. You know, you got a new pair of boots. I got a new pair of boots for the fall. For the fall. Black. Then you start with, well, I got a black pair of boots. Not even a brown pair of boots. No, seriously, doesn't it? I mean, the blessing of, I was just happy to have a pair of boots. I'm like, it's cold out. I'm not wearing my Toms all winter. Need a pair of boots. You know, that starts with now it's kind of like, well, for different outfits, I think I might need a brown pair. You know, and, and in our society, it's, you know, we have a house. I have a great house. Love my house. Most of you have been there. Cute little bungalow. Gift from the Lord. Now we're looking to adopt. I need an extra room. All of a sudden, my square footage ain't enough. <laughs> you know, I need to expand this puppy. But you know, the crazy thing is that in our society, no matter what it is, no matter, you could be in a position of riding a bicycle. You want a car. So you get gifted a car. I was gifted many cars as a single missionary. <laughs> Wonderful, beautiful cars. But it's amazing how you start with maybe a used Toyota Camry, and then all of a sudden you're like, this is awesome. This is great. The Lord provides. I love it. Get a sunroof. And then, like, it's a couple months, and you're literally looking over, going at, looking at the new camera, like, wow, can't wait till I get one of those. You know, we're always moving on to what's bigger and better. There's never a place of saying, okay, I may have 900 square feet <laughs> on this living floor, but I can fit another child, and regardless of the American dream or status or, you know, any of those things, I am going to find a way to be content and not be looking for the more. But in the midst of my circumstance, rejoice and then, you know, I'm going to use this as, a, as an illustration. We had an architect come over to see how much it would cost to finish our second story. So we're looking at like 50000 60000 And, you know, let me just say this. I'm very missions-minded, very orphan-minded. We do give, you know. And as a single person, I gave a majority of the income that came to me. And I will say missions, yes, I've been in missions, the Lord has provided ridiculously for us, like just miracles. So I'm, you know, talking to my husband about this, you know, addition upstairs. And as I'm talking about it, I just, you know, we're talking about shifting things, doing things, how we want to do this. And I just looked at him, and a spiritual father of ours raised seven children in a bungalow the size that I live in. <clears throat> One of our spiritual fathers. And so he raised seven children, and I still scratch my head with one. But you know what? He told me the story one time. They always wanted to finish the second story on their bungalow. And he said somebody gave them a very large portion of money. And at their family prayer time, he told all the kids, he was like, somebody gave us this money, and they gave it to us to renovate our upstairs. And he said all the kids were like, yeah, we're no longer all going to be in one bedroom. You know, they're all, like, psyched about this. He looked at all of them, and he said, well, he said, we need to pray about it first. And the kids were all like, huh? Like, what? We have been praying. We asked the Lord to provide the money for the second story. Like, <laughs> wait. <laughs> He's gone loco. You know. So he says, no, let's pray about it. As they pray, um, the husband and the wife feel together that they're actually supposed to sow the finances into their church with a new church building that the church was trying to purchase. So they forewent putting it into their home with their seven children in their bungalow, and they sowed it into the church. And, you know, I was thinking about this during this time that Daryl and I are talking about our second story, and I was like, Jesus. If you provided for me supernaturally, I, I hope and I pray that my heart is in a position that not saying he would totally tell me to sew it. He might go, finish your second story. Yeah. <laughs> but at least with an open hand to say it's not mine, it's yours. And what do you desire? I'm going to tell you the same testimony of that gentleman who forewent his um, bungalow having the second story. I recently actually watched him be given a multi-million dollar home completely paid for and debt-free that he lives in with his family. I'm not saying he didn't do it for that. He didn't. But what I'm saying is the heart that lives without greed, free of greed. See, I, it's not about how much money you have. I hope that you are blessed with millions. I pray that you're blessed with millions so that you can, you know, sow it into missions, sow it into orphans, uh, buy girls out of the sex trade. All of those things, I pray that you're abundantly blessed. But it's how much money owns us. That is the question. 
And we have this passage of scripture. I actually love this one writer. He calls it the bigger barn syndrome. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with the passage in Luke 12. We're just going to turn there really quick so we can wrap this up. Most of you are probably familiar with Luke 12. Parable of the rich fool, a fool, verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Which, let's just mark this, the ground yielded plentifully. When you're a farmer, when you're in agriculture, let's just be honest. There's a a place where it has nothing to do with the work of your hands. God blesses the ground. So if it's an abundant harvest, you have the Lord to thank for that. But we always, don't we like, always like to take credit? I worked so hard. I toiled, I labor. I built, I saved. I planned it wisely. I strategized all of my accounts, and therefore I have this. No, God blessed you. That's what he did. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Isn't that a great problem to have? Too many crops to store. So he said, I will do this. I will put down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink. This is probably early retirement. But God said to him, fool, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then those, then those will, will those things be? Whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Number one, most of us in this room, if we saw this gentleman, we would envy him and we would aspire to be like him because of the abundance that he has. But yet God labeled him a fool. And why is that? Not because of the, the abundance that he had, but how he stewarded what he had. Because actually what he did is he acquired it for himself rather than, like I said, taking the posture, God, this is yours. And how would you have me to steward and to give? See, each and every one of us in this room, what we have is not ours. You know, I might be stewarding a little less than you. You might be stewarding a little less than me. We've been given it by God to steward. And you should have no shame by how much or how little you have. But what you should have is feel responsible responsible before God. So for all of us, it doesn't matter where your bank account is at, this issue of greed is that when we're always looking for what can I gain, what can I get, and how can I grow my kingdom? Instead of when we are given, when the the right response with blessing in our life, and I'm just going to say to people in this room, I don't care how little you think your blessing may be. You're blessed. You are blessed. And when you begin to stop looking at what else we can acquire, and what else I want to attain, and what else I wish I had, and you begin to look at what is in your hand. And I'm just going to say, if it's this small for some of you, instead of the liberty of our Starbucks and our expensive, have we ever thought that maybe instead of stewarding it for myself and what I can do for myself, my next latte, that there might be somebody on the street corner that I could just buy them a nice lunch? You know, here's greed plainly illustrated. We've seen it in Scripture, but in a situation where I lived with other missionaries, Um, there was this situation, and this will lay it out for you. I knew two girls very well. One of them had not a dime to her name. Nothing. Not only did she not have a dime to, to her name, she came out of a family that had a lot of addiction and a lot of brokenness, devastation. So not only did she not have a dime, her family didn't have a dime to their name. So even if she ever needed it, she had no one to go to. Then the other girl owned businesses, rental properties, and I was good friends with her, very affluent, very well off. It had need of nothing. And I would continually watch this dynamic of what greed is play out. The young girl that had nothing, she'd get missionary support, $20 would come in. And I would find that we'd all be out to coffee and she'd offer to pay. She'd be offering to pay. And, I, and, I, and because I was in a position that I was always trying to make sure she was cared for and blessed, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. But I continually watched the dynamics with this other individual who had abundance and affluence. I, this was the scenario I would see consistently. The one that had abundance, if she called the other one and said, um, can, you, can you on your, your way back to the base, can you pick up um, two pounds of beef? Sure. The other young lady would come back, the one with nothing that I would know that she spent her last couple of dollars to get those couple of pounds of beef, would walk in, and the girl would say, how much do I owe you? You owe me nothing. We live together. We're friends. I'm not keeping accounts. 
And I would cringe going, that was your last 20 bucks for the month. <laughs> you know, I'd watch this, but you know what? She had no fear. No fear whatsoever because she knew God would provide. And I'd watch the other individual that lived with such abundance. I literally would watch that if the tables were turned and she asked, you know, for let's just even say a bottle of half and half, I would literally watch when the young lady would walk in the door, that girl would hand her a receipt for $2.50 and say, that, that cream was $2.50? You owe me. I'd watch it play out and I'd think, you know, like, this is crazy. She just bought you dinner last week. Like, you know, just the dynamics. But you know what it was is no matter how much or how little, one heart was free, free of fear. And that's literally what greed is. It's the fear, the fear that somehow God either can't or he won't. So therefore, it's all on me. And when we're free from fear, it's the place of saying, you know, whether he gives or he takes away, I trust him. I trust him. That he cares. I mean, I love, actually, if we went, we need to close this puppy out. But if we went on in, in Luke 12, it's actually where it talks about the birds of the field and the, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, how the Lord takes and he even clothes the flowers and the lilies with beauty, how much more he cares about you. You know, so there we are, we're all grabbing and looking and looking for what we can take rather standing and saying, but what can I give? I mean, our hearts have to be free from the posture of greed. No matter where we are at, like I said, it is not an economic status. It's a status of the heart that we have to watch and we have to look after. So bigger barn syndrome is what one person calls it. The fact that he built bigger barns, bigger still. You know, I heard this testimony one time of this gentleman that um, he, had, he had the blessing that he was able to retire when he was 40. That's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. So be it for me, Lord. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> joking. Retired when he was 40, and so he was like, okay, I'm retired, so what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to give my services to the church. He was obviously a skilled, brilliant, wise man. So I'm going to give my services to the church. So he's in the church, and he's going to give his services to the church, but what he basically came to realize is my gifting is making money. So even though he retired when he was 40, he decided to do another startup business so that all the residual income would come to the church. I mean, just that place of saying, that's a blessing, God, that's a blessing that God provided affluence and wealth, but it's the posture of then responding and saying, how would you have me steward what you've blessed me with? And lastly is the topic of jealousy. We're going to close up with this topic of jealousy. Some of you in this room are going, I am not jealous, I do not struggle with jealousy. Jealousy, in essence, is if there's something that someone else has that you desire and you wish that you had. I mean, that could be physical features, that could be... I want to be thin like them, or I wish I could gain weight like them. You know, like, there's people that desire different attributes. That could be something, there might be somebody with a, a GPA that you wish that you had, and that just irks you. It just irks you. I mean, it could be your SAT score. I mean, there's, there's a plethora of things, this issue of jealousy. And so basically in James, how many of you guys are familiar with the passage in James 4? I'm going to read it to you. Very quickly, because kind of all of these are boiled down to this issue. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Where do they, they do not come from your desire for, do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You war and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not ask and you do not receive because you ask and miss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. He says here, as far as the place of envy, and covetedness towards others, that that is where war comes from. This is what I'm going to say to you, is if you feel towards another individual, you feel that frustration, kind of like, I wish I had your, I see it all the time. I see people in ministry that wish they were in business. They're like, I just wish God would release me from ministry. I would love, you know, to be able to acquire wealth for the kingdom of God. I'd love to be in a position that I'm free to do that. Then you find people that are in business that wish they were in ministry. You know, everybody's on both sides of the aisle. You find single people going, I just want to get married. That's all I want. I'm just covetous. And then you find married people like, wow, the freedom of singleness. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you find everybody standing there looking at the other situation. But really what we find is this place of contention with other individuals. I I'm just going to say, your issue is not with the girl that's a size two, okay? Your issue is not with the man that has, you know, a six-pack. Your issue is not with the person that's driving the car you wish you had. Your issue is not them. You want to know what this really comes down to? You have an issue with God. 
Isn't it true? Your issue is with God because you think, God, you could have created me this way. You could have gifted me to do this. You could have put me in a region of the country that embraces the gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, come on, New England! <laughs> How many of you look enviously at other parts of the country going, man? See, your issue isn't with other people. Your issue is with God. Because he had the power to do it differently, but he didn't. He could have matched you up with a different person. He could have put you in a different social class. He could have wired your brain differently to make chemistry go a lot smoother. All of those things, you're looking at someone in your class, comparing them. Their life is different. Their GPA is different. All of those things. Your issue is not with any other individual. So let me just say right now, if somebody does it better than you, if somebody looks better than you, if somebody has it better than you, your issue is not with them. Your issue is with God. And what you need to do is you need to get face-to-face, nose-to-nose with God, and clearly articulate your frustration, your hurt, how you wish it could have been, all of those things, and lay it out. And I guarantee that in that place, as you work it through, you're not going to be able to say to him, you did it wrong. There's going to come a place of embracing, of saying, obviously there's something that you're working within me. There's going to be a place of trust and worship that is released from that place. So the issue of jealousy. The question then becomes, this is a good indication, if you have jealousy in your heart. Is there someone that if they failed or things did not go well for them, that you would secretly rejoice about that? That would almost feel good to you. Kind of like, ah, that feels better. Now the score is a little more level. (laughs) You know, that place of, that other people's successes we can't rejoice in. So the, we've gone through the answer for every single one of these of how to combat it. The answer for jealousy is celebrate other people. No lie. If somebody has your dream house, instead of inside, you look right at them and you say, this is my dream house. Good for you. <laughs> If somebody has something or acquires something, begin to verbalize with your mouth. And instead of keeping it internal, the toxic, I wish I could have. If you begin to celebrate and praise the successes of other people, your heart is going to be set free. And the longer you remain in a place of being critical and envious, you're envious, you're imprisoned. You're enslaved. These four issues that we've talked about today, they literally either cause us to be people that are free on the inside, liberated, walking in freedom and liberty, or these are things that if we do not choose to guard our hearts and walk according to the word of God, we're enslaved, we're in bondage, we're in captivity, we are living without joy, we're living without peace, and it's not because anybody else has done it to us. It's because we haven't come face to face with God and basically said, I don't like how you've done this. And this is why I said to the importance of daily working through the issues that are in your heart. That if you feel that, that, that issue of jealousy arise, you don't just keep moving. Oh, it's, it's human. It's nature. No, it's not. You can be free from that. You can rejoice in the successes of other people. You can walk free in that area of your life because he desires that from the inward man that you would find liberty and joy. So number one is guilt. The way that we combat guilt is confession. Number two is anger. The way that we combat anger is forgiveness. Number three is greed. The way that we combat greed is by giving generously. Number four, the issue of jealousy. And the way that we combat that is by celebrating other individuals. And I just want to encourage every one of you, there's not a quick fix, not an altar call. You come up here, I'm praying for you, all your jealousy is going to go away. I don't think so. Like I said, you shower every day. Start showering your heart every day. In the presence of God, exposing it to truth, to light, confession, evaluating, assessing, and guarding your heart. I would like, uh, Daniela, you want to give us your testimony? Because that's actually what I want to close out with. This is Daniela. She is. Hi. 
Um, my name is Daniela, and um, Bethany texted me one day, and she was just asking how was a set that I led, and um, I said, well, it was fine. I did this, and I did that, and technically we did this, and it was great, and she's like, well, I kind of met your heart, <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? And, um, and it just set me off thinking, um, like, because I have so long ignored my heart. So when I was 15, my dad was a pastor of the church. He left for the secretary, and he threw the church on my mom's back and, and us. So we were the pastors, and, and that, so I kind of learned to ignore my heart, you know, from then on. Because, I mean, people don't care that your dad left or whatever. I mean, people still require you to perform fully, right? And so we learned to perform at our full capacity without paying attention to our hearts. Um, it's just what we did. But um, so I, I said that to her. I said, well, I, I don't know. I ignore my heart and you keep tracking along. And, um, but then I started thinking for myself and I thought, when was the last time that my heart actually agreed with my life? <laughs> And um, for me, it was um, when I was in Japan. Uh, we lived there for a year uh, for my husband's work. And um, we started building a house of prayer there. And, um, and I was, you know, most of the times it was just me and another person praying. And there, there was not big crowds or anything, but I just felt so alive. Like I was opening portals over Japan and that, you know, forever God was starting something in Japan because I was there. And we were supposed to be there for four years. And then the market crashed in 2009. And my husband's company said, you're all going to China because we can't afford to keep you in Japan. And my husband said, there's no way I'm done with Japan. I'm done with Asia. And he brought us back here. But by that time, uh, my family's not here. His family's not here. It's like we're all alone in Cambridge. And, I, you know, for, I think for two years, I yelled at him a lot. <laughs> Even though I knew it was God, I was so angry. And, um, and that was the last time I felt like I was right before God. My heart was right. Everything was just working. And then I realized, um, and it, I felt like God said, write this all down. So I started writing it out. And... Um, and I came to that. I said, I'm angry with you, God, because you could have kept us there. Why did you do this? Like, why did you bring us back? And I was doing your work there. Now I'm here. I'm angry. My husband says, go study. I already have a degree. Now I have another degree. And, and it's, you know, I'm working. I'm being a mother. And I'm doing music. It's, just, it's such a secular life for me. I guess I want to be the person in ministry. And God did not place me there, right? <laughs> And um, even, I mean, every time I sit at the piano, um, no matter what's going on in life, as soon as I sit there and I close my eyes, just heaven comes down. And for the past four years, heaven is closed. And that's my one place I return to. And I don't even have that. And so it's been a very hard four years. And, um, but the Lord said it was, I was angry at him. I was so angry because he took all of that from me, you know. And, um, and then as I'm writing it down and I'm telling him how angry I am, it started being his words coming out. And he was saying, it's because you love me that you will stay where you are. It's because you love me that I have put you here to reach the people that you're in contact with. It's because you love me that I'm stretching you. It's because you love me that I'm growing your sphere of influence because of the calling of your life. It's because you love me. And he started saying, um, so when I compose, I, I got a another degree in music composition, and, and um, I've, I've only started composing um, late in life, and, you know, people start this when they're really little, and um, I, when I was doing my master's in composition, I won every single competition I, I um, entered, and, and God really raised me up in that area, and so God says, compose magnificently because you're composing for the king, you know, and mother your daughter because you're mothering for the king, for a child of God. She's my daughter, and love your husband magnificently because you're loving a son of God, and everything you do, you do magnificently. I teach piano, and he told me to love those children and bless them um, because they he loves them he loves every one of them and um, so I didn't really realize why my testimony was so important when um, Bethany asked me to give it but um, I guess I went through that whole thing where I realized I was my anger was with God and and 
and, and anger of, of, of where he's bringing my life and, and where I don't want to be. But um, ever since that day, my heart has been so much lighter and, and agreeing with the purposes of God. And um, that's it. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Love you. So we're just rejoicing just with the breakthrough, like I said, on a heart level. And all of you know Daniela. I mean, her and her husband are wonderful. They're successful. They're educated. You would never know on a heart level just even the turmoil of these last four years. Of, um, and like I said, that's why we can't compare our lives one to another. Because with the many blessings that surround her, there was a desire in her heart that was unfulfilled concerning Japan and coming back to Cambridge. And this is why with each and every one of us, it's not about the external about the internal. And I just want to encourage every one of you even to take time this week with these four points just before the Lord and just saying, God, I want my heart to be healthy. I want my, my, my heart to be alive. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to have a beautiful mind and to have a mind that is functioning and creative, but it's even more extraordinary to have a beautiful heart that is free and clear of offense and free and clear of anger and free of jealousy. And that's the way he desires us to live. So we're just going to close out with a word of prayer. God, I thank you, Father, for the community of people here. And God, I thank you that you're jealous for our hearts, Father, that you're not content with us to simply get by devoid of peace and devoid of joy and passion. And God, I ask, Lord, that you'd um, even extend grace to us this week, Father, that we could come face-to-face with you and even heart-to-heart with you. And, Lord, hear what you have to say. And, Lord, we do ask, Lord, that our hearts would be revealed and that our hearts would be healed by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.